Welcome to the Back Room of Politics and further discussions on the topic of climate change. A lot of people always say to me, what's it like in Parliament? You have your sort of scraps, uh, you know, people making speeches and uh, counter positions taken, all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, do you guys all go off and have a nice cup of tea or, or perhaps something stronger and, and you all get on very, very well? Well, the truth is that you don't get a lot of time for that sort of activity, but it's also a fact that across the parliament, there are a lot of views that are similar. There are just uh, differences that you get in the way in which any particular policy uh, might be interpreted, might be promoted, uh, or might be put into law. And one of the great strengths of New Zealand democracy is that we do have those vigorous debates. Uh, we don't resort to the sort of uh, breakdown of, of civil society that you see in so many other countries. So these discussions, I think, from that point of view, are very important. Uh, my guest today is uh, Green MP uh, Goldrez Grahman. Goldrez uh, might want to talk a little bit about uh, her background, uh, and then we'll have a discussion about the issue of uh, climate change, which has the whole world pretty much occupied at the present time. Uh, and it is a serious matter that we do have to try and get some practical uh, resolve on. Ah, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And thank you for acknowledging um, as well that democracy kind of is predicated on us having conversations and, and we do do that here, despite what it looks like <laughs> out in the world. Um, we do we do have some constructive conversations and, and I find that, especially in Select Committee, which is kind of where um, our conversations have always come from. Um, I come to New Zealand's parliament from a background um, where democracy was very much missing, obviously, because I come from Iran and my parents were political asylum seekers who were granted refugee status here. So I, um, in 2017, became quite inadvertently the first ever so-called refugee MP. And I kind of, I do hold that title dearly now, once it was sort of thrust upon me, um, as a reminder that actually participating in democracy is a real it's quite a humbling kind of it shouldn't be a privilege it's a right but you know I take it sort of seriously in that way and part of that is to actually try to come to constructive solutions for some of these problems including the climate crisis um, I think kind of placing ourselves as, as in, in the context of being citizens of the world is really useful the, uh, the word crisis is interesting I, I don't use that word because I think it frightens people too much I think it also is somewhat uh, disempowering it implies that you can't do things. I think you're right actually I, I, as in I think you're right in in that that's what the evidence shows we started to I think we, there was a move where um, uh, there was criticism of the way that climate change was being covered by the press or that they, they were they were sort of um, creating false dichotomies between climate deniers and the science. And at some point, their reaction was to start um, ascribing a high level of seriousness to, to whether you call it a crisis or not, the, the sort of man-made climate change. And that's where the word comes from. But actually, you're absolutely right. The research now shows that it is disempowering. And yeah. if we want to motivate action, we need to start using a different, different, different word. But you know, it, it, it's the it's the balance between um, treating it as a really, really serious thing, and also helping to motivate change and action. So uh, coming right to it, I mean, the differences among parties here, I don't think are that massively uh, apart. Um, but the, the effect of some of the what's being proposed could be quite uh, different and disparate, and we've seen that uh, discussion going on in the last uh, few weeks. But National signed uh, the Paris Agreement. 
uh, we support the Zero Carbon Act. We supported the establishment of the Climate Change Commission, although I think it's become more activist than advisory. Uh, and we support the 2050 uh, Zero Carbon Target and the split grace approach for uh, for methane. So there's, there's a lot of uh, similarity there. It's in the delivery of, uh, of the right outcome that I think we start to uh, see some uh, you know, dif- difference of opinion. So we have, um, uh, in, in recent days, been somewhat critical of the uh, idea that you can somehow make a massive difference to New Zealand's carbon output from transport by having a subsidy for electric vehicles or hybrid vehicles or low emission vehicles. Now, all of that is good. We want that. But New Zealand imports 150,000 new vehicles into the country every year, whether they're secondhand, uh, they're new to the new owners. Uh, and if you look at what the um, uh, content of both hybrids and uh, uh, electric are, it's about 11% of those. It's very, very low. And that you then say, well, okay, well, what's the sort of uh, potential cost of all that? What will be the overall effect? And even today in the House, you, you heard the Transport Minister admit that um, at, at its, um, you know, once it's really up and running, it might make 0.04% of a difference um, uh, of, of, to our emissions profile. And I think that's that's the thing that people find perplexing. People want practical things that they can do uh, that might change an emissions profile. Because I don't think anyone, even you'll have you've got your deniers out there. That's absolutely true. But no one can ignore the sort of uh, weather patterns that we're experiencing at the moment, uh, the the sort of merging of seasons that we're seeing currently, uh, and I think uh, the willingness of people to do things if they can easily do it. Uh, is, is not going to be all that uh, um, far away from us. I think the starting point for me always on climate change as it is on inequality or any issue that that we, you know, uh, and, and we've seen it with COVID, um, face as a community, including as a global community, is that we need governments to take a lead to, to present systemic solutions. So that doesn't mean that you know, we, we're going to suddenly see climate change addressed with a subsidy on electric cars. But we need the government to start somewhere to help people to, across the board, make better decisions. We've seen, and the other side of that policy, which I do actually really, really like, almost sort of maybe better than the EV <laughs> side of it, is that we're going to initiate, finally, standards on the cars that we're going to allow to be imported into New Zealand, which is something that we're really, really behind on. Um, I don't think New Zealanders want to have high emissions vehicles. Like you say, not many of us are actual deniers that you know pollution is bad. Our consumption patterns contribute to uh, climate change. There is man-made climate change. People want to make better, better um, decisions, but we have a lack of regulation around some of these things. So where the government is stepping in and saying, we're not going to have high emissions vehicles, that might be cheaper, for example, but by 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 that we were also in a in a um, in a reverse way try and make lower emission vehicles like EVs and hybrids more affordable. They're not going to be affordable to that many people, and that's where my concern starts to come in. Is that actually well? You know, we do want to move to a place where we're not burning fossil fuels for transport all day every day. But are we doing enough to help people um, access? vehicles that aren't doing that. Yeah, you've also got the the problem that uh, uh, massively increasing the the amount of uh, electric vehicles on the road will put greatest demand on the available supply of electricity. (laughs) Yet we've got uh, resource laws that don't really uh, assist with the the, uh, 
proliferation of of uh, renewable energy, which is, is a better good. problem to have. So your your well, problem that. that you've identified is a different <laughs> problem, which is which is a good no, no, good no, thing to identify. You've cut me off. I was making a point, and my <laughs> point was that. Uh, if you went back four years, New Zealand's uh, renewable uh, energy rate was approaching 90%. It's dropped back to just over 70 in uh, in four years, and that's a big problem. At the moment, we're burning coal and yeah. diesel in order to keep the lights on. And I, you just say, well, what's the gap here? You know, we're going to, we sort of, there's a whole bit missing in mm. there. And it, and, and it also means, in my head anyway, that uh, going headlong into a solution without actually having all the background to it that'll allow you reach to reach that solution, which in this case would be substantially increasing the amount of mm. renewable energy available, so, and that's, is a problem. But I, th- I think that's a, that's actually a wonderful position <laughs> that you have. So you're saying we need systemic transformation in terms of how much renewable energy we have versus burning fossil fuels and coal or whatever to keep the lights on. Great, we do need that. And then we also need a move to EV or hybrid cars so that we're not then also using vehicles that are directly burning fossil fuels. Great, we agree. So how how do you propose the government invests in moving us toward that 90% renewables rather than the 70%? Because that's what I am interested in that. Well, I mean, I think one of the things I was I was just getting to is a very sore point over the uh, the gas ban. And whether we like it or not, although it's just uh, on new exploration offshore, it's actually slowed a lot of other exploration as well. So we, we now got gas constraints for the North Island. And you ask yourself, are we better putting gas through the uh, three-stage uh, cycle turbine uh, at Huntley or turning on the coal plants, which are there at the moment? And we're turning on the coal plants because the gas supply is not strong enough. But and I think that's, that's a real solutions. problem. <laughs> No, no, it's not. A, it's not. A, it's not. If you're going to transition uh, from uh, a, a essentially a, a fossil fuels economy, several things have to happen. One is you have to have availability, and we've we've found out in the leaks in the last few weeks that uh, actually the availability of electric vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, even hybrid vehicles, are not going to be substantial. Look at that. You know, we're going to make a point four percent difference. But look at um, our investment in solar. And yeah, but, I mean, we well, said- hang on a minute. There's another one. That's another yeah. issue. Um, I, I'm a great fan of uh, embedded uh, generation. I've got yes, solar on my own house. I think yes. it's great. It works really well, but not everyone can afford it. It's very expensive. No, and that's where the government does need to come in. So if we're going to transition and we're going to have a just transition, it's not going to be a commodified transition where you know some people can afford to be good and some people can't, and then we're going to villainize them. I'm not about that at all. I'm not about attacking people for buying the wrong whatever because they're trying to feed their six kids and make it to their factory job. The government needs to step in and help us make those decisions. And when it comes to solar, it absolutely needs to be at least partly carried by the government. We do need to make that transition. Um, And as you've said, if we're gonna move to EV, if we're gonna shut off the coal plants, we need alternative sources. And what's more, after COVID, we said we were gonna train all these people in in clean, green jobs. Um, Well, solar technology- Why didn't you do it? Well, we are doing it, but we're doing it through DOC. We're doing it in a way that, and people have pointed this out, and we've pointed this out, and Julianne Genter as Minister for Women pointed it out, is that actually only supporting outdoors jobs or physically uh, uh, strenuous jobs has meant that we've kind of gendered our green uh, jobs response to COVID. If we invested 
more of that into technology jobs, science jobs, research jobs, teaching, nursing, let's leave that out, But when, which is something we do need to do, but it doesn't fit into the solar conversation. We could invest in training people to kind of innovate. And we, this, is, this is where we could actually start to lead in the world. Yeah, but that's, see, why that's down that, the track, but we need yeah, to no, fund no, solar No, you just first. ask yourself, why isn't that happening? It's because people can't get their, their uh, they can't, uh, I suppose, tangibly grip onto actually what's being tried here. Mm. And I think, um, you know, I, I always like to bring things back to as much practical as you can. So it's simple steps that people can do. It still perplexes me that we have so much soft plastic in our supermarkets. And a simple question, what would be the uh, cost of the economy if we took it out? I bet you can't find that because no one mm. would have done that work because it's much more interesting to do big things like, oh, we're going to electrify the vehicle fleet, even though you know that's never going to happen uh, in the next 30 years. Well, and as you've pointed out, that's not a big thing, but it is a necessary thing. And I don't think we need I'll to... i tell you what, it's massive. It'll be massive. You no, look... no, no, the plastics will be... I, I'm not saying the plastics, but I mean, in, in terms of the EV thing, it's not like people are choosing a big thing over a small thing. Both are... You know, the plastic thing is big too. The EV thing might actually be smaller than that, but it's a step that we need to take. Like, we can't keep putting off different steps because we're not doing this, so we can't do that. We are actually able to do more than one thing at one time. Yeah, but I think you've got a very uncomfortable smorgasbord of stuff there at the moment, which I think is also a problem. So if you take something like the uh, proposed walking and cycling bridge across Mm -hmm. across the harbour, massive, massive expense for a very, very uh, low predicted number of people uh, using that. The reality is that whether they're uh, electric vehicles or hydrogen uh, vehicles, and I, I personally mm-hmm. think hydrogen is going to be a bigger technology for vehicle transport than, than uh, electric, um, they still need roads to run on. And I think, yep, it's great to get people out walking and cycling, but why are we making people feel bad about using their, their vehicles when you actually want the, to live in a city like for Auckland or Christchurch or uh, uh, Dunedin, anywhere that's large, Wellington here, where you have to move quite big distances to things like sport and other cultural activities, which are important for people. Yeah, but look at, look at the big, big cities. Look at New York. They're massive. They're, like, they're, they are actually massive distances that you have to travel. People aren't just getting in their cars and doing that because they have a well-run train system. We don't. We need to invest in multiple things. So it's That's, not just walking and cycling. It's not just electric vehicles. It's also trains and it's also uh, buses and it's also making those things uh, more e- energy efficient and lower emissions and it's also making those things more affordable. So making them affordable for students and taking them off the roads means that the people who are having to drive cars can have a better experience. New York's got a 150-year-old system uh, for 15 We've million people. We've got nothing. 15 We've million people nothing. on the size of Auckland. We're not going to replicate that. No, but we At no point will, at will some we replicate point, that. And I'm glad that in Auckland we're doing it. We're actually investing in, in some solutions that will take people off the roads, which will make the roads a bit. It's not about making road users feel bad. It's about making their experience better. It's making their experience less um, polluted <laughs> because actually not everyone wants to be on the road. Okay, well, look, tell you what, we're just... Uh, finish on the topic of uh, agriculture, which is uh, really it's the backbone of New Zealand, whether it, we like it, it or not. It, we're very, very, 
Beg your pardon? And the globe. Yeah, well, we are very efficient producers, particularly mm. of protein here in New Zealand. Uh, the most uh, efficient producers of protein of any country in the world. And uh, you remember a few years ago, there was all that food mile sort of argument. And New Zealand uh, did the work and proved that actually we can produce here and distribute uh, with a much, much lower carbon profile than, than most other countries. So how does it make sense for us to reduce the amount of uh, protein produced here uh, by cutting our, our, our sheep numbers, cutting, cutting our dairy numbers, cutting our beef numbers on farms. It just seems to me that, that, that what's missing here is some kind of international agreement that actually doing some things in some places is better than anyone else. The idea isn't, I think it, what what we need to hold is that the idea isn't that we're just going to go in and cut sheep numbers or cut cow numbers or you know, just kind of take those industries away. The idea is that we go in and we support farmers to diversify or to change their practices because we all agree that everyone has to do that in order to move to a lower emissions economy. That's just shifting those emissions somewhere else. Then the no, amount of the amount of uh, the food consumption is not going to change. The world demand for protein is going to grow. So why wouldn't we say, look? We can produce it here better than anyone else. We're going to produce more of it. Well, the idea is that we're not producing it in a way that's as environmentally friendly, as efficient as it could be. So it's about supporting our farmers to do that, do it in the best way possible. And if that means reducing um, some of the fleet numbers, then that might be what it is. But we still need to support them to move to that. Why do you think they don't feel supported? Well, that's, I mean, that's the better question. It's like, how can we, because we talk about just transition in the green movement. And the idea is that, yes, we need to transition, but we also need to acknowledge that that's going to impact workers. It's going to impact farmers. It's going to impact people who work on boats and fishing. And, you know, it's going to impact industry. Um, and that isn't going to impact everyone in a fair and equitable way. So we actually need the government to step in and support those in the, in the industries that we're we've been seen to villainize to actually change because nobody wants to be on on the bad end of the climate crisis. No, and they don't. And farmers are... They absolutely don't. I know. Farmers I talk to are very, very conscious of the world they live in. Their lifestyle, Mm. their their, um, uh, income comes from uh, a solid uh, economy and, should I say, Mm. a stable environment. Yeah. Um, And so they're very aware of all that stuff. But it just seems seems to me it's very odd that we say, look... Uh, you're the best in the world at what you do, but you've got to change. Well, they do have to change because everything has to change. So it, that's the same we're with manufacturing. Gonna, look, we're just going to see the it same with else. the way that we fly. That's the way. So, but we need the government to wrap around, support those industries to to change in a way that will be profitable for them to the extent that it needs to be so that they can actually support their families and thrive and not, you know, and we've seen a lot of farmers fall into absolute, you know, we know mental health in the farming industry is terrible. So we need to hold all of that and it needs to be a just transition. Um, So the question, the better question is how can we best support them to do that rather than uh, you know this dichotomy, and I think it's a false dichotomy between addressing the climate crisis and maintaining our way of farming forever, as it has always been. Well, no, no farming uh, way in New Zealand is the same as it's always been. Well, exactly, it's constantly evolving. And I think one of the other things that really fascinates me, and I, you know, someone might pick this up and, and tell me I'm wrong, but there wouldn't be a grass pasture in New Zealand now uh, in productive farming. That is the same seed stock that was there 30 years ago when the, our um, uh, you know, 
carbon targets or our sinks were set, that it is much stronger and there is much, much more sequestration on our farms these days than yep, has ever existed. Yep, and we're innovators. We are an innovation But we don't get nation. credit for that. And we're still getting no, these poor guys get, told and I guess, you're doing it wrong. And well, not. I guess that's the thing. I think, so, you know, you agree that actually diversifying the way that we do farming and, and progressing it in a way that's climate friendly well, you, you is a would, good thing. You and I would have a different view on what uh, diversifying is. I think um, <laughs> all I see is that our guys, our farmers, pick up good practice all the time. Mm-hmm. The world leaders in a lot. But it's about supporting them to do better and better and not and not villainise anyone because it that, is about being just the point. So if they're mm-hmm. doing things better and better, why not produce more and more? Because it'll mean someone else doesn't. And so, you know, it's no good New Zealand being out here saying, look, uh, aren't we wonderful? I've hit all our targets. And by the way, we're a long way from them. Uh, We've hit our targets, uh, but the rest of the world's gone to bits. We can't say that more and more and more and more and more and more forever is going to work. We live on a finite only, planet. Only, and that's why it has to be a more global solution. Is there? Oh, it absolutely and needs that's to be I a think global there is solution. A problem but with we need people. to be part of the global solution that's by right. setting the example. But I think some of the people who, who are absolute zealots on some of the stuff don't really want that solution because it will mean a different picture for New Zealand. I don't see that, just as I don't see that farmers are opposed to changing the ways that they do things to be more environmentally friendly. I've never seen them be opposed to that. I I think they do feel unsupported sometimes, but I don't think that they as a group are are opposed to to sort of getting that support and changing. I also don't see the kind of zealotry that I think the green movement gets accused of. I think everyone wants the same thing, but maybe we need stronger communication. Mm. Mm. We might wind up there. I think there's a lot of things that we would agree in common, but there are some things that we would be uh, quite different on when it comes to the execution of some of these things. And uh, I do think that New Zealand needs to have a conversation about what we're good at, what we can achieve, what we can do, and where we can contribute to the global reduction of, of emissions, as opposed to just looking internally as we appear to be doing at the present time. Well, we need to do both. It's not an either or. Goros Grumman, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. No worries.